Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and co-parents of all ages, this podcast is for you. Introducing in the center ring, the amicable divorce expert, Judith Weigel. We live in a different society now insofar as gender is concerned. We no longer have a simple straight gay versus straight. Um, simple straight versus gay society. Now we have massive transgenderism, non-binary people, different use of pronouns, and people changing their names to be one letter only, defying a gender identification. Not only does this gender shift challenge us to understand it and why, but in our work in divorce, challenges exist in filing, mediating, and making decisions for co-parenting. This episode will explore the complexities and special considerations that are now part of this revolution in gender identity. And joining us in Centering today, we have two attorneys who both have experience in one of these areas. We have Megan Spomer and Greg Lake, both of the Nebraska Legal Group in Omaha, Nebraska. And I really thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you, Judith. No, this is, this is a great topic to explore right now. So just to throw it open to you as, so that you can bring to the public what you've done, what types of divorces have you both handled other than heterosexual ones, gay, lesbian, transgender, non-binary. Megan, if you want to go first, I'll, I'll defer. Sure. Um, well, I have handled um, several gay divorces, um, especially in the last two, three years. That has become much more prevalent. Um, and I've handled a handful of transgender and non-binary divorces as well. In, in, in the last two years, three years, what span of time? I'd say um, my first transgender case was uh, five years ago. Really? Okay. Did that precede Caitlin, Bruce turning Caitlin, or was that around the same time? Gosh, I can't remember exactly. I'm not as dialed into the pop culture as some. <laughs> as I am. <laughs> Um, but that was very helpful. When Bruce turned into Caitlin, that was really helpful, especially with the TV show. Okay, so thank you. Greg, how about you? I, I handle the same types of cases as Megan, um, generally, but gay divorces. Um, and and have I have recently started receiving um, transgender and non-binary cases in, say, the last two, two and a half years. Excellent. So what special issues occur um, and did occur in the divorces that you handled? For me, um, the biggest issue that I saw in a, in a transgender divorce, um, one of the parents was transitioning and they were young children. And um, when I say young, I mean five and under. And two kids, um, and, and the parent that started transitioning really um, or put onto the kids, hey, don't call me by my old name. Don't refer to me as dad. Um, here's my new name, and start referring to me as mom. And, and it, was, 
it was confusing um, for the children. Start referring to that person as mom. Right, right. Okay, go ahead. Opposite gender. Right, right. And, and for a, a younger child um, who was preschool aged, it, it was confusing. Um, and it became hard. And, and there was some strain on that relationship um, that, that hopefully has healed. Um, and what I saw from that experience was just however people want to live is fine. But we have to know that there can be some sort of limitations with, with children. And, and the best way to um, start helping them along in the process is not necessarily demanding things right away, um, but going in and, and taking it slowly and, and not being um, so, I, I guess, excuse the pun, but so buying it. So, you know, right away, it's either X or Y. And it just doesn't have to be that way, especially in divorces when uh, emotions are running high already. Um, That's just not something else that you need to inject into that mix. My thinking when I started looking at all of this was, and I've had experience, by the way, helping a woman write a book when her husband became a woman. It, actually, the title of the book is My Husband's a Woman Now. So I learned a lot about this. And then we have Bruce Jenner turning into Caitlin, and we had that show. So I learned a lot about that. And one of the things I learned, and you kind of alluded to it, Greg, and that was, yes, this is a huge issue for the person transitioning. I mean, it cuts to the quick, to the of our humanity because we need to be comfortable in our own skin. We need to be authentic and honest, and then we can live the best life we could possibly live. But when you're in a family situation, when you're in a marriage with or without children, and then you have a marriage with children, you're not in this alone. And you alluded to that, which, you know, by saying, well, you know, the child then had a huge transition to make. Can we address this for a minute that you're not alone and not only does your spouse have to accept this because you're going to co-parent if you're going to be divorced, but the children, are the, how are they even set up to deal with this? So I've, I've actually seen this play out both ways. In the very first case I had where, one, where my client was transitioning, um, and, and to be sure, when someone's transitioning, it's necessarily a fairly selfish time, right? They, they are essentially shedding a past version of themselves in order to be their truest version of themselves. And that takes, that takes a lot of focus on themselves. And when there's children involved, that's incredibly challenging on the family unit. Um, I'm going to give two examples. The first example was that first case, that individual male transitioning to female. um, He, he, and he still had a a, a he pronoun at the time. So I'll refer to him that way for purposes of this conversation. Um, He had lived as a man who cross-dressed for the majority of his adult life. His wife was aware of it. She didn't have any problem with the cross-dressing, but when he finally said, hey, I want to transition to, to be a female full-time, that's when they decided to divorce. 
this family generally was pretty conservative. It was interesting to me that the wife had been okay with the cross-dressing, considering what I knew to be the dynamics of the family. They were church-going. Um, we live in Omaha, Nebraska, which is a purplish area, but it's still pretty conservative by um, broad standards. And so that that was a norm, what I would consider a, a fairly typical family dynamic in this geographical area, right? Fairly conservative, church-going. They're not out and out about most of their business, let alone um, non-traditional issues such as cross-dressing and transitioning. Um, once once my client decided to fully transition to female, um, his relationship with his spouse went pretty bananas. The child was caught in the middle. Um, the child actually had the same name as his father. So when father then changed his name to a female name, that, that was a unique challenge in that case. And that kid, because mom, mom was so conservative in her thinking, was really challenged in that relationship with his father. Now compare that to a case I just had this year where mom and dad, um, mom who also identifies as bisexual, dad who was going to transition to female, they had been talking about this with their child who at the time of the divorce was about eight years old. And the child um, was perfectly comfortable calling both parents mom, perfectly comfortable with the idea of transitioning. Mom was supportive of the transition, but where the negativity came in was from grandma. So husband had moved out of the home and was living with his mother. And the plan was for him to transition to female. And in private, child referred to both parents as mom. But father had asked the child to call him dad in the presence of grandma because grandma was not accepting of the transition. And so the ask of the child to lie about what she had come to learn as normal and reality was actually the, harm, the more harmful influence on that child because she, prior to that, she thought this was a fine thing. It was nothing bad or unusual, but then she was all of a sudden asked to lie to grandma. So you can kind of see both scenarios where you have the parents putting an influence on the child that is causing harm. And another scenario where the parents have, have helped the child come to understand what's happening, but then outside influences then start to, to make things very difficult um, for the child. And in, in both of those situations, the obligation is on the parent to protect the psyche of the child. And whether that means setting aside your selfishness as the transitioning parent, or whether that means asking your family who isn't as supportive to back off and let them parent their kids, either way, it's the obligation of the parents to make sure that that child is protected through that process. I love the fact that you said justifiably selfish. Mm -hmm. And I understand that. Greg, do you feel the same way? Absolutely. Definitely. Uh, and I just want to, and I want to build off Megan's point a little bit there that, you know, this divorce, divorce is hard enough or child custody. Even if it's even if the parties aren't married and it's a long-term relationship or a short-term relationship that produced a child, hey, that's that's tough enough on on kids, and so let's not put any more undue burden on them than we have. And that does not mean that you can't live your life and you cannot ask certain things of them. But hopefully, you will understand. People would understand that um, you know if their kids aren't processing it well or or they're confused or whatever. Just, it's not their fault. Um, they'll, they'll generally 
um, come around and, and start understanding. But, you know, if we have to take it slower with them, then, then perfect. Please do that. So can, in your opinion, or have you seen, the transitioning person definitely has to go inside themselves and they have to make themselves a priority because they're re-identifying themselves. And I, I just thought that was beautifully said. Thank you, Megan. While that's happening, is it possible and, and have you experienced the transgender person going into therapy with the child or children and maybe, you know, a mom, just so the family can transition at the same time, potentially? So I, I would say family therapy in a divorce is a good idea, no matter whether it's a heterosexual divorce, a transgender divorce, a same-sex divorce, family therapy, if I could mandate it as a divorce attorney, I, I would 100% because divorce makes people incredibly selfish, whether, whether or not you're transitioning. So I, I would think that it, was, it would be an amazing idea for, for parties to do that. In, in the cases I've handled, they have not been in any sort of joint therapy. How about with you, Greg? Yes, I, I have had one, and it's the same case that, that I was discussing before, and, and we're trying to, uh, uh, the family was in therapy, the immediate family, um, mom, dad, small child, um, and then, you know, eventually mom, mom, small child, and, and the therapist was, was trying to help them move through and complete the process and, and have little one figure out what's going on. Um, and, and it got exacerbated because um, dad transitioning to mom wasn't, wasn't giving that appropriate time. Therapist was saying, hey, it's okay, let's slow down. Let's not demand that child starts calling you different pronouns um, or different uh, or identifying you as mom now. Um, let's slow down. It'll come. And it was not enough patience. And so that kind of got, got the case sideways for a while. And then when we tried that patience, when we kept it moving along, it, it got better. Um, so it's, it's certainly important, hopefully, um, in, in a case of, of a transitioning parent, uh, hopefully we, you can always get some sort of mental help or I'm sorry, not mental help because that's just, uh, it's not the correct term. I'm, I'm trying to say like a licensed mental health therapist. Right. Um, well, that's not a stigma. I don't think that's a stigma. It used to be a stigma, but I mean, we all have our own degree of mental health that needs help at some point in time. Correct. Yes. You know. Uh, I probably need it more than most. <laughs> I don't know. I would challenge you on that one, Greg. <laughs> With these cases, best to keep them out of court, best to mediate, or or did they have to go to court? Did did was a judge's help needed on some decisions in any of these cases? I I would generally say that it's not um, the best idea to have a judge who does not know you or your spouse or your situation or your kids deciding your life and deciding your major life uh, decisions or, or um, impactful uh, events that are going to happen in the future. I, I would always tell people to keep it out of the hands of, of that judge. 
Um, and so thankfully we were able to mediate the case that, that I'm referring to and didn't have to have the judge um, decide that. Yeah. And, and I would, I would agree with that. And um, most of us in this, actually I think all of us now are trained mediators. We're big advocates of mediation. We see that we get far better results for our client who then feel much more satisfied with the outcome. And again, that's across all of these cases, regardless of, of the transgender issues that do or don't exist. Um, particularly though, in a jurisdiction where you have substantially more conservative judges, I, I advise my non-traditional clients, like if you want a, a decision that serves your interests, you're going to be much better off reaching an agreement with your soon-to-be ex-spouse um, than leaving it in the hands of a judge who may have biases against you. And and they do. I, and that's, I don't mean to be disparaging, but they're human beings. And uh, there's this cultural competency workshop that I go to in July. It's been ongoing for about nine or 10 years here in Los Angeles. And at lunchtime, there's a panel of judges, up to like eight to 10 judges, and they share their biases with everybody in the audience. It's mostly an attorney audience. I'm one of the, the few non-attorneys, but because I file as a legal document preparation company, I, I like all the education I can get. And I was, first of all, just so appreciative that they dropped their guard and really talked about their biases and how they work to overcome them but they shared what their biases were with the attorneys and said, you know, help me um, through the way you organize and present your client, you know, help me be the best I can be. And so is, is, do you find that's clients' fears? Clients run in two ways. Either they have fear of what the judge is going to say, or I know the judge is going to understand completely and see everything my way, and so let's go ahead. Right? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and I'll just relay a story from Nebraska, from March of 2021. There was a, a county court judge in a smaller county in Nebraska who denied a uh, lesbian couple the right to adopt um, their child. And, and the reasoning was uh, because their petition said wife and wife, and wife in Nebraska is legally defined as a woman who has a lawful living husband. Okay. Oh. The Nebraska Supreme Court, thankfully and correctly, said any adult person or persons may adopt a, a child. So even in 2021, there's somebody saying, um, I don't agree with, with your lifestyle, so I'm not going to allow you to, to adopt a, a child, essentially. And, and maybe that's not, I, I don't know, I'm not going to assign any intent to the judge, but, but certainly his ruling was, you can't adopt this child because it's your petition says wife and wife. Um, that, that, you know, is not in Omaha, but it's still in Nebraska. And so not, not letting somebody that you don't know and doesn't know you control your life outcome. Gosh, I, I'd rather have that in my hands. Same thing for you, Megan. Oh, absolutely. And I, I always kind of joke with my clients when they come to see me. I mean, you might have a judge that nine times out of 10, they will do the right thing. And by right thing, I mean the thing that the law says they should do, which is to, to treat people equally under the law. Um, however, you get them on a gassy day and they do something that you don't anticipate 
And then all of a sudden you're stuck in a year and a half appeal trying to get the outcome fixed. And that's not justice. That's not in anybody's legal interest. That's going to drain you of your finances. And most people can't afford to even do it. So they're stuck with this order that is objectively unfair. Let's go to non-binary a second. And I do realize that every state is slightly different in terms of their court forms. But, you know, with non-binary, the issue is these pronouns. And they're not, well, when you're non-binary, you're not really expressing one gender over another, right? That's what non-binary is. And so, therefore, you pick whatever pronouns you want. And they, them has always slightly confused me, but that's just me. On on your court forms in Nebraska, does gender have to be expressed anywhere on the court forms between petitioner and respondent? As of this year, the statutes have been amended to um, reflect non-binary language, um, meaning you just have to identify as a spouse. Our marriage certificates now allow for spouse one and spouse two instead of husband and wife. Um, I I didn't even think about the marriage certificate. Thank you for bringing that up. Greg, I'm sorry I stepped on you there. No, you're welcome. It's, um, we have a a very unique legislature here. So while it's a conservative state, we have a, a unicameral. We are the only state in the union with a unicameral. And what that means is that our, our elected officials in the legislature are technically nonpartisan, um, which leads to a lot of what would be considered traditionally liberal legislation that passes, um, despite the fact that I would think most of our legislators would identify as Republican or conservative. Um, and when you can have, when you take the labels off, you find that legislators are much more likely to act pragmatically. And so once Obergefell came down, you started to see a bunch of legislation introduced that rectified the gendered language and the statutes that confused a lot of the judges um, or that forced them to feel like they couldn't make a decision uh, that they either wanted to or should make because the statutes still use gendered language. So like Greg said, the statute says wife is defined as a person with a living husband. Well, wife is no longer legally defined that way. They're spouses. And that has really addressed a lot of these issues. Interesting. Okay, starting with the marriage. I should find out what, what's going on in California. I, think, I find that fascinating. You know what they did change about a year ago in California um, are the genders of the children. So mm-hmm. it used to be on the petition that you identified the name of the child, the birth date, the age, and the gender. And about a year ago, they took that off the petition. Did you find that also in Nebraska? I don't know. I do not know the answer to that. Me either. No, no, on the petition. How how do you have to list the children when you list children on the petition? You don't have to list the gender of the children. You just, their uh, date of birth or their year of birth. Has that been for a while? Yeah. Yeah. It has been okay. Then, we'll, then we're late to the party. Yeah, in, in the I, I, Greg and I have been practicing about the same amount of time, and I think it's. I don't think I've ever listed the gender in a petition. Nope just just the name name and year of birth. 
let's go back to the relation, the co-parenting relationship. If, if the, if the other spouse, if the heterosexual spouse has not yet accepted that the soon-to-be former spouse is transgender, how does that affect the co-parenting? Has, has that influenced any of your cases? Yeah, so I, like that first case I, I discussed that I had about five years ago, the, the spouse was not accepting of the transition. Um, I think she was fine with it being something he did in secret um, without it being out in the world. But once he wanted it to be out in the world, it became something that she had a difficult time accepting. And the relationship between the two of them became very challenging. You know, she started accusing him of, of being essentially a sexual deviant. And that was not something a fit parent should be. And so it was a custody fight. Right. And, and more than likely, she didn't want her child, their child, to spend time with the other parent. Right. So how did it work out? Did the other parent then have get visitation rights? Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, for, for several years now, um, the judges here have been, been very... What's the right word, Greg? Uh, egalitarian. Okay. Very, very egalitarian when it comes to parenting time, regardless of which parent is asking for it. Um, while it's not official law or policy, um, what we have found is the standard unofficially has become equal parenting time absent a, a showing of unfitness. And so um, absent some proof that he was a danger to this child, he was entitled to equal parenting time and he got it. I thought, I always found that fascinating, this extreme argument against homosexuality that it goes from just homosexuality to all these extreme deviant ends, like relation, I'm sorry, relationship with animals. I'm like, okay, do we really have to do that? That's, that's just too much. But within this transition, there's enough to talk about to make, to, to, to make, to make therapy important and to make a pause important like emotional divorce has to be dealt with before the legal divorce. So this is something I've talked about for years. Once people come to terms with the fact that they should not be married anymore, and they have children. To immediately file if their emotions are high, if they're still processing, it just seems to make the process, the legal process, that much worse, that much more expensive, because at the end of the day, it's easier for you as attorneys to get through a divorce, get the filing done, put it to bed, if the parties are able to communicate and can make decisions, correct? Sure. And I think we'd all love for our cases to start that way, but they don't. And, um, you know, we have to deal with the reality we find ourselves in. And that's our job. It's our, it's our job to remain the rational thinkers and to give our clients the benefit of our experience and of our rational thinking because we're not emotionally invested um, and help them through that initial part. Um, you know, there's a waiting period in Nebraska. There's a 60-day mandatory waiting period. And so delaying filing has a consequence of at least two months before your divorce can be final. 
And so it's sometimes hard to advise people that they should wait to file until they've cooled off because their financial interests need to be protected as well. And so we have to get a handle on our clients early on and help them through that emotional phase um, and help them make decisions that are in their best interests while they're feeling those feelings, because it could be a while before they're through that emotional divorce and their, their personal financial security can't always wait for their emotional security to catch up. Well, that is true. I, I understand what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Megan, um, every state has a different minimum amount of time in which the state will allow the divorce to be completed. Ours is six months mm-hmm. from the day the respondent is served. Mm-hmm. Yours is 60 days. Talk about your waiting period. Yeah, it's the same. 60 days from when the, the opposing person is served. So people can actually be divorced in two months from the time that they, the respondent is served as long as all the decisions have been made and written up and submitted? Yes, yeah. and we actually do that frequently as part of our mediation practice. Wow, that's really short. Mm-hmm. I know yeah. it's... I know it's six weeks in Nevada because Las Vegas requires nothing more than fast tracking. But as attorneys, do you find that if the parties are settled, that you can get all the work done and filed in 60 days? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. For, For most cases, for the, you know, Simple, simple divorces. I mean, if there's complex business records that need to be gathered and accounted for, that'll take a little bit more time. But most most couples don't have that. Most couples have a couple of 401ks, maybe they've got a couple of cars, a mortgage, and that's it. And that's that's pretty easy to get prepped and done in 60 days. Oh my gosh, California is laden with so many other considerations, mm-hmm. intellectual property. Um, maintaining lifestyle, because if you're in the um, film and television business and you're a wife of an executive, your whole world changes. There are no more premieres to go to. There are no more A-list events to go to. And that discussion of maintaining the standard of living becomes a very specific discussion. Yeah, and that's not a thing here. Spousal support and and maintenance of standard of living is not a judicial consideration. Uh, Spousal support is rehabilitative in nature only. Um, Absent truly extraordinary circumstances like a 30 or 40 year marriage and just someone's disabled. I mean, that's pretty much the only time you're looking at permanent alimony. Right. Right. You were smiling. What were you going to say? We don't have any premieres here. Um, (laughs) You can generally go to the College World Series. Maybe the zoo uh, in the Berkshire Hathaway uh, meeting, which is this weekend. So I, I'm going this afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> Are you actually going? Oh yeah, it's just it's downtown. Yep. Go ahead, Craig. I just say, come on, come visit Omaha. We'd love to have you. I'm thinking. I'm, I'm in my mind. I'm seeing p- p- people packing up their trucks and moving out of Beverly instead of moving to Beverly, like the Beverly Hillbillies. Mm-hmm. Um, because people really complain about six months. And I'm like, really? Six months is too long? I can't get you to do your disclosures and two months has already gone by from the time <laughs> the respondent was served. And you know, people don't realize that they hold the keys to time. 
until you submit the final paperwork to the court, it's all about the parties and how long it's taking them to get through their decisions. Absolutely. Now we do make it, Nebraska makes it a little bit harder. You have to be a resident for the state, uh, live in the state and be a resident of the state of Nebraska for one year prior to being able to file for divorce. Okay, so that's a little more than us. We are three months contiguous to the day the filing starts in in the county in which you're filing in and six months anywhere in California contiguous to the filing. So that's not so bad. Um, New York, when we were initially talking in in the pre-interview, we brought up New York. They used to be two years and an at-fault state. You had to prove grounds and then the state had to agree whether you should be divorced or not. But we only have, I think, maybe one or two states left like that. Definitely. Is that Texas? Yeah, yeah, I think Texas may still have some element of a contested divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the only one that, that I've heard anecdotally. So when people come to you and you know they're highly emotional, and these types of cases can be highly emotional, do you suggest or ask, should we put a pause on it for a little bit? And if they say yes, is there any concern? Does the court give you a certain amount of time before you can put a pause? So I haven't had a case where I thought a client was too emotional to proceed. Um, typically, if they come in and there and something crazy is going on, the correct course of action is actually to, to speed up. It's to do something to protect them, either physically or financially. And if they need to pause for whatever reason in therapy or if they're in counseling or if they're even trying to reconcile, they can do that. That's fine. Um, and it depends on what county you're in, how fast the courts want you to move your case along. In Douglas County, after four months, they file what's called a progression order. And then you have to tell them within 30 days when you're going to be ready for trial. Um, and so that's our biggest county. We have 17 judges. They have thousands of cases. And so they, they do what they can to keep things moving along. Some of the smaller counties, you can sit open on the docket for a year before anyone even pays any attention to you. So it really just depends on where you're where you're at in the state. But um, if you tell the court, hey, you know, they're in mediation or they're attempting reconciliation, they don't mind. They'll let, they'll let you kind of sit on it for a little while, as long as you just keep them informed of what's going on. That's nice. That really mm-hmm. is. That's good. We have a five-year statute. Five years, if you don't have children, you're done. The court wants to close. They're not being lenient anymore. You're if saying a divorce case open for five years with no children? Uh-huh. Oh, <laughs> no, that's the, and that's the limit. If you have children, it's more than that. So I have a couple coming in tomorrow that they started their case 12 years ago. 12 years ago. I didn't know them then. I wasn't in family law at that time. No, our judge would just set that for trial and, and you try it and you're done. Yeah, no, I, I it, you know, you the court will send out letters, what's going on, this is where you're at, let's have a status conference, and people will just ignore the letters as if it doesn't matter. I'm always shocked at how people can ignore anything legal. 
I, I just don't understand and, and feel confident nothing's going to happen to them. Well, apparently nothing is happening, which is why they feel confident they can ignore it. I guess so. So I had to file a motion at, uh, with both of them signing it to set, ask the court's permission to give them another few months because they're ready to roll and complete it. And the court said, okay, so we're finishing it up tomorrow. But um, 14 years was my longest. Wow. I, the Nebraska Supreme Court has, has a rule that um, they, time limits that they want cases to be done. And I think that it, they want the district courts to wrap up 95% of their domestic relations cases within one year. Yeah, and the district court bench has to report to the Supreme Court why certain cases haven't resolved after a certain period of time. And it's not long. It's it's like 18 months mm-hmm. that they have to explain why a case is still open, especially a domestic case. Well, let's use an example, and it has. I guess it hasn't happened to either of you yet, but it may. Somebody's in the middle of transitioning, and they have to stop the divorce case because now they're going into medical procedures. It's time for that. And everything has to stop in their life so they can address it. Um, what do you do? Do you ask the court for an extension? How does that work? Well, it depends on if the case is unresolved or, or not. I mean, if they've mediated, so in Nebraska, you're required to attempt mediation to, to get a parenting plan and it doesn't matter who you are. You got you to gotta at least try. Um, and so if they've mediated a parenting plan or at least a partial parenting plan, the court's going to want that entered and enforced. And then the rest comes down, the, down to property. And again, our property rules here are really straightforward. So in nine out of 10 cases, there just isn't that much to fight about. So there shouldn't be any reason that even if that person is undergoing medical treatment, that they can't be available in some capacity to sign off on the documentation. If it does have to go to trial, um, I don't know how much leeway the court is going to give a person who's having a non-emergency surgery to avoid resolution of the case because the other party has a right to be divorced. Um, and so if, if, it's, if it's a surgery that can be, you know, if trial is set on a day and you were aware of when the trial was set, you don't, you don't get to schedule an elective surgery. And by elective, I mean non-emergency, right? Something you're, you're scheduling and you have control over. You don't get to delay your trial for something elective like that. Um, well, I wonder if in the process of the procedures in, in transitioning, whether something might be, it might be imperative that at this point in time, right now, this has to be done or there'll be irreparable damage. I assume then that would be a special consideration. Sure. I mean, I think any physical emergency or any emergency medical uh, procedure would would get some consideration. Um, but if it's something you're just scheduling and you knew the trial date ahead of time, the court's not going to be too open to continuances because they, you know, they're bumping other cases in order to hear your case. And it's not like True. they set, it's not like they set trials a week in advance. You know, your trial date several months in advance. Right. And so unless it's an emergency, they're going to want that done. Not to say that the courts don't regularly continue things. They do. Um, but you get one of those usually. And then after that, you, you need to be ready at trial. You need to settle your case. Greg, do you have such a thing as status only divorce? Meaning 
you're divorced, but all of the other decision, decisions regarding property settlement and possibly custody and visitation uh, are put off to another time. Sort of. There is a Nebraska Supreme Court case that, that came out in maybe 2018 that says, well, hey, in Nebraska, if, if one spouse has lived here for the one year filed for divorce and got the other spouse served in a different state, um, we can, the Nebraska courts can grant a divorce and leave alone and I guess push on to some other state uh, division of property, uh, parenting time and all of that stuff. Yeah. So kind of. Kind of, and it's highly unusual in cases where both parties are present for them to do what we call bifurcation, where right. they hear different parts of the case at different times. Um, it's just not judicially economical. So unless there is a, a pressing need to divorce the parties, in which case it would probably be by stipulation um, that they would say, okay, we agree that the court is going to divorce the parties as of this date, but hold in, in abeyance the other issues. Um, I've never seen that done. I think in theory, the court could in its equitable powers do that, but it's not something that they're regularly doing by any means. So going back to, because I want to just touch upon this again, it's the Mm co-parenting. I mean, in any divorce, it's the co-parenting, it's custody, it's, it's, it's the children the the most valuable asset anybody has are the children. And have you, in the cases you've had, had any children say, I'm not comfortable yet. I don't want to stay with, and it's the parent transitioning. Have you heard that yet? I have not run into that specific issue. um, Kids are so open-minded. They just want their parent. That is true. They just want their parent. They just want their parents to get along. So if you're, so if you're in mediation and the co-parenting schedule is being discussed and the heterosexual parent just hasn't gotten to that point of acceptance and doesn't want the child with the other parent, does it typically have to go to court? Is there any way in a mediation? I know we're not supposed to convince people of the decision they need to make, but is it, have you hand, how have you handled that if the heterosexual parent is reluctant? I think with, with all parents that, that are reluctant and I don't, you know, I'm not going to give up time with my child or other parent. I don't, I don't like the new person they're dating. That's, that's a fun one. That, that happens a lot. Um, you know, look, I, I have to be honest with clients that in Nebraska and Douglas County, we can go to trial and we're going to waste a bunch of money. And the judge is, doesn't know you, again, doesn't know you, doesn't know the other side, doesn't know your story, and is going to say, okay, I've weighed the evidence, and, and I believe that you should have joint physical and legal custody of the child. Here's your schedule. And maybe it's not the schedule that you wanted, that you could have gotten in mediation or settlement. Mm-hmm. And now you have every other week, and you were really hoping for um, two, a 2 2 three. 
So um, that's that's how I let my clients know that we can do it. We can go and, and put on a, an amazing case, uh, the best case possible, and you still might lose because it's up to the judge at that point. Uh, especially if you've already been in on a te- what we call a motion for temporary allowances where a court sets kind of a status quo for the case so that one parent can't withhold time while they're in mediation. And if at the temporary hearing that, you know, the client put in their affidavit all the things they were worried about and the court read that and still said, nope, it's going to be 50-50, that's a pretty clear sense of where the court's going to be at trial, you know, absent anything new happening um, that was a danger to the child, especially if it's going fine. You know, you know, I get it. You might not feel comfortable. You might not like it. It might not be the life you saw for yourself or for your spouse, but you have to adapt to the reality you're given. And if the court didn't see it your way on the temporary hearing, they're not going to see it your way at, at the final trial either. It's an excellent point. That really is an excellent point. Lastly, and we didn't touch on this yet, People are changing their names to be one letter. I I am seeing this in Los Angeles. Have you seen this in any of your cases or or your uh, colleagues' cases? So I used to work for child support enforcement. (laughs) And (laughs) Greg's laughing because I think he's heard this story before. Um, the, The issue of names, right, is always been fraught. And... I, as a child support enforcement attorney, would see people name their children all sorts of ridiculous things, things that you would think the hospital should stop people uh, from leaving the hospital with names like this. Uh, for instance, I had, <laughs> I had one, one person name their child Cash Money, and the S in the cash was a dollar tip. That was their legal name, Cash Money. Wow. Uh, <laughs> all one wow. word. I had another woman uh, name their child Absidy, A-B-C-D-E, Absidy. Um, I saw, what did I see once? Oh, this isn't a joke. It sounds like a joke. Bus stop number nine. Oh, my heavenly days. Because that's where they were conceived. (gasps) And that was their legal name. Um, I have not seen anyone change their name to a single letter yet. I have seen them change it to gender neutral names. Um, like uh, most recently, some uh, Josh changed their name to J, J-A-E, and, um, and things like that. But I haven't seen anything. I haven't seen anything crazier than what I saw in child support. <laughs> well, um, I have seen twice a woman, and they were both lesbian divorces, believe it or not, change their name to one letter before they came to me. And, okay, I was, I was a babe in the woods on this one. I said, I don't know that there's a precedent here. I said, look, great that you got your name changed in the court to one letter. But if you look at these forms, there's a first name and a last name. And I'm kind of thinking that if you put a letter we're going to get this stuff kicked back and somehow the court's not going to understand. And I tried it years ago when this, the first person that came to me had one word as their name. Not, so it, most recently it was one letter. But the very first case was one name, three names to one name. And I said, 
would this be offensive to you to go back to your birth name for the purposes of the divorce or, and I need legal reaction to this, or put in parentheses next to your new name that the court has already granted you, the one name, put in parentheses formerly known as. Because when people get divorced, this is my thinking, when people get divorced and women change their name back to their maiden name after the divorce is final and there are children and a few years down the road, they're back in court, they need new, new orders for child support, incomes have changed, the co-parenting schedule has changed, therefore they're, they're set up for new orders. And they come to me to file the request for order. I have to put their new name, which is their former name, and then I have to put in parentheses, formerly known as. How would you handle that in Nebraska if somebody came to you with one word or one letter? So there's the right way, and then there's the way I think most people would do it. <laughs> okay, guys, this is good. So I think the way most people would do it would be to have their legal name, right? If the court grants a name change and the court has deemed that name legally acceptable, then I don't think they can then later say that you can't file under that name because um, that's your legal name and your vital statistic records in the county will reflect that. So that should be fine. Um, they put their legal name and then formally known as in parentheses. I think that's how most people would do it. The correct way is just to use their legal name. If they only had one word or even a letter, you think that would fly, Megan, in the court? If the court granted it, if the court changed it and granted it and made it their legal name, I don't think they can say that it doesn't fly. The granting, I'm wondering if it's the same in Nebraska. In California, the granting of a name change, name change comes out of civil court. Mm-hmm. Family court is a whole different court. And I don't think they come together at all. But it's still a judicially enforceable order, isn't that? So maybe if the, the court... Pardon right, me? The, state, the state of California has determined via, right. via the civil court to change the name. I don't think a family court could say differently. Um, although I'm not a California attorney and I can't say for certain. But in Nebraska, the civil, the civil district court is the same. Um, it's the same court that would change your name as, that would divorce you. We don't have a separate family court. Oh, oh, interesting. We have different divisions for everything. Mm-hmm. There's another factor for people that, that don't think that um, they should settle. Uh, our judges hear everything. You know, in the morning, they're hearing a murder case. In the afternoon, they're hearing your divorce. And in between, they're hearing a, a contracts case between, between two um, businesses. Yeah, it really puts it in perspective for your client when they understand that the reason the judge doesn't think that the behavior of their soon-to-be ex-spouse is as egregious as they do is because, like Greg said, in the morning they heard a rape case, and so they don't they don't think the the fairly mild behavior of your soon-to-be ex-spouse is that bad because the context for what they they hear in their day is in the extremes. Okay, two things. First of all, how does a Nebraska judge know as much about law because they have to render decisions within this lane of law? How do they know enough about law in all those different areas to be able to be functional? 
on the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Megan's pleading the fifth. Greg? No, I, it's just on-the-job training. Seriously. A, a lot of our judges are um, former prosecutors or they came from the, the civil division of uh, county attorney's office where they're doing, you know, whatever they do over there. Um, and so they're good at communicating with each other. And, you know, maybe there's one judge on the bench that has family law experience. I think that they might lean on him or her, um, say, hey, I've got this. What do you think? I, I know that they talk um, throughout the districts as well. Um, I'm sure that judges talk to each other and um, from all over the state to get some some background at least for, hey, have you, have you seen this? How'd you rule? Interesting. Okay, so this is a shocker. I learned something new uh, in this regard today. The other thing that you had said, Megan, uh, that I, I wanted to comment on was perspective in ruling. So in what you just said, a judge could go from a murder case in the morning to a civil case in the afternoon to a family law case uh, to close the day. And the perspective from which that person is ruling is something very extreme. What if it's a murder trial, high-end rape, something like that. And now you're talking about the co-parenting schedule. And I've had the child at home most of the time while we were married. Therefore, I should be the, the parent who has the child most of the time now that there's going to be two, two homes and are generally shocked to find out the judge doesn't agree with that. Yes. Yeah, that's accurate. And what I say to folks is like, you're, both of your lives are changing. Whatever worked while the two of you were living together and married isn't going to be either of your reality going forward. You're not going to have a second parent in the house to pitch hit while the other one is doing the dishes or taking a shower or getting ready for work, right? Mm -hmm. So both of you are going to be parenting 100% of the time on your own time, which means that it doesn't necessarily matter that one parent didn't do as much of the caretaking because on their parenting time, they're going to be doing all of the caretaking, just like you both will. So it just... They have to get their minds around the fact that their lives are going to look drastically different. And the fact that one of them might like to smoke a little weed on the weekends when they're not around the kids is not going to persuade a judge that they're an unfit parent because at the end of the day, it, it's so minor compared to some of the other behaviors that the judge sees. And unless it directly affects the well-being of the child, they just don't care. Nicely said. And that was a really important point you just brought up because as the legalization of marijuana has become more pervasive around the country, it's being used in mediations for parenting time, uh, co-parenting schedules. And uh, I'm glad to hear you say that. Yeah. And I only use that example. It's just because it's the one I feel like I hear the most often that they shouldn't have any time alone. with the, They should be supervised because they occasionally like to smoke some weed. And I, and I, that's my reaction nearly every time. How about you, Greg? I, I, I agree uh, with Megan Hunter. So the other one I hear um, is, you know, oh, well, they drink, they're drinking. It's not illegal to, to drink. It's still illegal in Nebraska to, to smoke weed. Um, and it probably will always be. Um, but it's not illegal to, to drink alcohol. Um, and unless they're drinking to excess and it's directly affecting the children, judge doesn't care. In fact, I've had judges say, you know, I like to sit in my garage and 
have a beer on the weekends. Does that make me a bad dad? Yeah. Right. I've, I've heard that on more than one occasion. And, and you say that out loud to a client and then you remind them like, you like to have a glass of wine on the weekends. Why are you acting like this behavior on the other side is so egregious, but you're accepting it yourself. And there's, you know, there's just these blinders and it's true no matter who the people are. Yeah, I know. The mirror of self-reflection doesn't reflect all the time, does it? No. One of the things um, that I say to parents when uh, the issue of, but I was the stay-at-home mom, I mean, rarely I was the stay-at-home dad, but I was the stay-at-home parent, and they're used to me. I do the homework, I cook, I clean, I do everything else, and so I therefore I think I should have most of the time. My reaction has been, understand, understand your logic, but even though the other parent is out most of the day earning a living so that you can be the stay-at-home parent, you still knew that parent was coming home at the end of the day. That energy was still part of the family unit. The clothes were there. The evidence that this person existed within the household, within the family was still there. And so at some point, you would have access within the household to that other parent. When there are two households, that energy is gone. And as you said, Megan, that backup is gone. If you needed a pinch hitting uh, uh, opportunity, you had to do something. And I, I think that's really important for everybody to understand that the rules have to change once there's two households. They can't be the same or you're restricting your children from having valuable relationships with both parents. How do you feel about that? Couldn't say it any better. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And um, I frequently tell those, those clients that have those concerns to me, let's, let's let the other parent try. Um, see what happens. Maybe they will fail. Maybe that, that other parent will realize I don't want to do 100% of the parenting time 50% of the time. I'd rather do 100% of the parenting time 25% of the time. And, and so let's let them, let's, let's let them, let's try and see how it goes. Excellent point. Excellent point. Because there have been times when the other parent said, I thought I could do it. I really can't. Let's reorganize and choose another schedule. And that's a very self-aware parent. And money in child support is not the issue. It's how are we taking care of our children properly? When we have them, are we giving them our time? And so that's a very self-aware parent that, that would say that. Thank God. Thank God there are. Yeah. Have I not asked something as we're concluding our time? Have I not asked something that each of you really wanted to make a statement about in this conversation? The only thing I think is really important is that no matter who the people are in a divorce, whether they're heterosexual, homosexual, one's transgender, non-binary, polyamorous, at the end of the day, the dynamics really are the same. You've got two people hurting. If you've got children, you've got an innocent person in the middle or people if there's multiple children. And the focus always needs to be either on the children or on the future of the parties, no matter who they are. Because if they're thinking only in the moment, if they're only thinking about themselves, they're going to reach a result that makes very little sense and doesn't serve anybody's interests in the long term. 
And so no matter who you are, where you come from or, or, or what your life looks like, making sure that you're focused on the big picture in the future will always end up getting you a better outcome than being focused on the pain that you're feeling now. Thank you. Greg, any parting comments from you? Absolutely. And Megan, that was perfect. I would say this. Don't take advice from someone who's, well, I did this, or I know somebody whose case went like this. Your case is not the same. Your case is never going to be the same. Even if it's the same judge that the person that you know or your handyman has a friend who has a cousin that had this judge, still not the same case. Um, you have to make decisions for yourself, which is going to be best for you and your children moving forward. That means to me, be the decision maker in your own process. Don't, don't let outside voices influence you um, and come to bad, bad conclusions. Because all that's going to happen is you're going to spend more money to get to the same point we've probably been telling you we're going to get to for the past couple months. Or to a worse point. Or to a worse point. Yeah. And so you be your own decision maker. Don't let outside influences. You should know what you want. You should know what's best for you. Most other people don't know that. Perfect. Thank you both. This has been a great discussion. I've really enjoyed it. I've, and I've enjoyed listening to both of you share your perspectives and your hearts because you just, if I were getting divorced in Nebraska, I would absolutely call both of you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank yeah, because you. you have a heart and that's so important. You know the law and you have a heart and, and people need that when they're getting divorced. And so I really appreciate the work you're both doing. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Your contact information is going to be in the show notes. But uh, would you like to at least give an email or something if people are just taking notes as they're listening? Yeah, absolutely. Um, our office line is 402-509-7033. If you're in Nebraska or your ex is in Nebraska and you need some help, come let us know. Say it one um, more time, Megan. The phone number? Yes, please. Uh, 402-509-7033. And that'll get both of you, right? That'll get yeah. both of us. Excellent. Thank you. I really appreciate the time you've given us and your experience. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Judah. And thank all of you for listening. You know, I appreciate each and every one of you, and I hope this topic has been beneficial to you. Please share it with anybody that you think needs it. You can reach me through my email address, Judith at theamicabledivorceexpert.com, Judith at theamicabledivorceexpert.com, and as always, have an amicable day. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. Be good to yourselves, be kind to your spouse, and cherish your children above all else.